The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's June 1st, the time is 4.06, and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. I'm Jake Winters. And I'm Marissa Jordan. Later in the show, we'll have Community Calendar. And as always, Jake Winters brings you Snowverated. This week, he reviews the film Akira, as well as reporting on the fate of a historic Raleigh landmark. Saif Hassan brings you News Beyond the Headlines. This week he takes a look at a story on 40 dead tiger cubs found in Thailand. And on KNC Goes to TMZ, Jamie Hollow brings you information on Bloodfest in Michigan. Marissa Jordan brings you a piece about her Moogfest experience. And Alex Hopp and I interview Dr. John Shepard on the science of beer. And our old EOT co-host, Mirtha Donastorg, reports on special ballots in Raleigh. Stay tuned. Let's start with the basics of voting. How to actually get in the election booth. IDs are required to cast a vote, and it's honestly gotten a bit confusing for me. Being an out-of-state student, I don't have a North Carolina ID. So I stopped by the State Board of Elections and found out just exactly how I can exercise my constitutional right to vote. I'm Ted Fitzgerald. I'm the lead voter outreach specialist with the State Board of Elections. Okay, so anybody who votes in North Carolina can use a variety of identification. It doesn't necessarily require a North Carolina ID card. You can use a, a variety of federal ID cards, such as a passport or the passport card, also any type of military ID card. And that is not only for active military, but it also includes the uh, spouses of military, retired military, and also military dependents. So you may have students who are dependent military from out of state, and they can use their cards. If they're a member of a federally recognized tribe, they can use those cards to vote. And, of course, they can use their out-of-state driver's license or DMV-issued identification card, but only within 90 days of registering to vote. You have have an out-of-state ID, you don't have any of the other IDs, and you haven't had time to go to the DMV to get one or you don't have transportation, or you just don't have time because of classes to, to do that, 
you have what's called a reasonable impediment. Now that's, that's the new part of the law that basically is a fail-safe for voters. It says basically you don't have an ID and you tried to get one or, or are unable to get one for any reasonable reason. And, and you, 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 you pick the reason, whatever it is, it's not going to be questioned or challenged. You're allowed to vote a provisional ballot that will count if you can provide other forms of identification, non-photo IDs, in the form of either showing a utility bill or a bank statement, something with your name and address on it. Okay. Uh, and and any, really any document from a government source would be fine. So it could be, uh, if, if you don't have a bank statement or a utility bill, you can show uh, something from the university, for example, that would have your name and local address on it. Or you can show your voter registration card. Okay. Or if you don't have either of those two, you can simply show, uh, you can simply just tell the poll worker the last four digits of your social security number and your date of birth and then that vote will be verified by that information. You don't have to come back to the Board of Elections and do anything else after that. Now, students who want to vote on Election Day can vote, but they have to vote in their precinct. And this is very important for anybody who votes in North Carolina. During early voting, you can vote anywhere in the county that you want to at any early voting sites, but if you wait until Election Day, you need to go to your correct precinct and you can find that information on your voter registration card. You can also find it on the website for either the Wake County Board of Elections or the State Board of Elections. Okay, when you, when you go to vote in a primary, if, if you are registered as a member of a party, a Democrat, Republican, or Libertarian, you are given the ballot for that party, and you would have all the races on that party plus any of the unaffiliated races like judges and the uh, bond issue. Mm -hmm. And you, those are all on your ballot. Now, a lot of people are unaffiliated. They register unaffiliated. Yeah. So if you register unaffiliated, you are asked for your choice of ballot, and you tell the election official which ballot you choose to vote that day. You can get an unaffiliated ballot, which just has judges' races and the bond issue, or you can get the party of your choice, the Republican, Democrat, or Libertarian. On Tuesday, the polling places are open from 6.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. Find your polling place at www.ncsbe.gov. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Mirtha Donastorg. Another weekend, another music festival. This episode, I will be reviewing the music festival Bloodfest in Howell, Michigan that I attended over the weekend. Now, this was my second year taking the long drive to Michigan for the Emo and Punk Festival, so I had an idea of what to expect. However, I did go with different people this time, and let's just say I didn't know most of these people, and they were honestly not as fun as my group last year, but I'll try not to let that hamper my review. They may or may not have tripped acid in the backseat of the car while on the way to Michigan while I drove through the flatlands of Ohio, and yeah, that's just all I'll say. 
The first thing that should be said about Bloodfest is its unique location, a high school. Now, I can't figure out if this high school is still being used or not, but the halls are lined with lockers and there's a library, gym, cafeteria. The bathrooms are working, so maybe there are kids in class today, four days after an emo and punk festival. Who knows? The location does provide for quite the experience, as how many people can say they saw future Screamo Legends Old Grey perform in a high school cafeteria, or kids stage dive during Super Heaven's final set in Michigan? I saw kids attempt to mosh to some local Michigan hardcore band called Athena's Grace in a classroom, who is not a very good representation of the hardcore that Michigan is known to produce, such as Negative Approach, Freedom, and True Love, but the lead singer did have lots of face tattoos, so that's a plus. Modern metal stalwarts The Black Dahlia Murder closed the evening out with quite the heavy set that brought many metalheads from across the state of Michigan to mosh, headbang, and raise their devil horns. I didn't particularly see the appeal here, but lots did. One set I was pretty excited to see was Aaron West in the Roaring Twenties, which is Dan Campbell of the Wonder Years fame side project. Um, to be blunt, I kind of hated it. The entire premise of this side project is a big concept album where Dan Campbell performs as Aaron West, a Roman Catholic man growing up in the 20s but facing life struggles and yada 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 blah blah blah. Long story short, it just came across as very gimmicky and cheap and I think I might be too old for it, or I'm just jaded. Who knows, it just wasn't very good. Bloodfest is a cool festival due to its unique location in a high school, but that can also be considered a pitfall as that high school is not very well air conditioned. The main room, which I believe is the cafeteria, felt like a dang sauna while walking into it. It was awful. I don't see how many of these kids could mosh or be up close without dying. It was that miserable. Again, I might just be old and hate close contact with sweaty people, so I don't know, but I was not about to get anywhere close to that stage and risk heat exhaustion. If you're listening to this Bloodfest, I just recommend getting better air conditioning next year. Not that I'll be returning again, though. Bloodfest just paled in comparison to the much larger music festival Moogfest I attended last week. And there just might be a shift in my musical taste from emo and punk to more electronic and hip-hop centric. I can't stay emo forever! Also, most of the bands that played Bloodfest I'd honestly seen before or could see at any small venue in Raleigh. Its appeal is just the hot and sweaty high school. If you're in Michigan, Ohio, it's a cool festival, but honestly not worth traveling 12 hours for, especially with annoying kids from Kentucky. But that's just my bias. This is Jamie Hall with Eye on the Triangle. I hope you have a good afternoon. Hello, this is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and this week I will be taking a look at the film Akira. If you haven't watched a lot of anime, I think it's safe to say that you are among a majority, although the number of people who have seen one is always growing. This also is assuming your definition of anime is a Japanese-produced cartoon. This isn't always the case, though, as anime in Japan just refers to anything that is animated or is a cartoon, so they would call a show like Family Guy an anime, whereas I have never heard an American call it that. Well, if you haven't seen any anime, or if you're already a fan, Akira is fantastic. It is based on a manga released in starting in 1982 and continuing to 1990. Many anime films are based on manga, which are essentially graphic novels. The actual film was released in 1988. The reason I bring up the viewership of anime is the fact that many dismiss it as being a childish form of entertainment. This is shifting as we see more animated films in the U.S. geared at kids as well as adults, like Inside Out. But many people probably choose not to watch these films for similar reason to not watching anime. Both kinds of movies are actually well-fleshed-out stories that grab the audience and pull them into worlds far different from our own. This is something that normal filming just cannot do as well. 
Everyone should give animated films a chance, and Akira is a great way to get back into the genre as an adult. Akira is a fantastic movie. It tells such a strange story, but it is still great. The story starts in Neo-Tokyo post-World War III. The style of the city and animation inhabiting it is incredible from the start. The fading trails behind motorcycles and the neon signs scattered across the city skyline set the scene and mood of the movie. Technology rules in this world, and people are starting to resent it. The story is probably the strongest element of this film, and that is saying something, because of how well everything is done. While watching this film, I found myself recognizing relationship archetypes that show up in many modern anime movies. The relationship of characters in this film is so well done that it made other movies' attempts fade in comparison. This most likely comes from the fact that it is adapted straight from the manga, which probably had a lot more time to develop the characters than the movie did. But even with limited time, the creators did not use any crutches in making their characters full. There's no real hero, and the main character is vague for the entire movie, but we get to see so many different characters evolve over the course of the plot. This is similar to how Game of Thrones develops its characters by showing many different perspectives on the same events in the world. The art and style of the movie is stunning, and the fact that it was done in 1988 makes it all the more impressive. The cyberpunk city that the characters inhabit is in transition from war back to society, and it is on the brink of collapse once again. They not only capture the state of functional disarray that is a revolting city, but also the technology and drug-centered culture that is cyberpunk. The combination of these two styles is unique, and the art stands out at every chance the movie allows it to, which is something that allows animated films to stand out. Another thing that kind of stands out about anime is that it doesn't shy away from blood. This is another part of what makes some animated films so adult. The movie is animated, but I would never want to watch it with a kid. The animation in this film is some of the most fluid I have seen and adds so much life to the film. The movements aren't jumpy and they feel natural. It makes it easier to forget the movie is even animated at all and just treat it like a story. I think that is one of the things that throws many people off from animated films. Sometimes it isn't lifelike and it creates a distraction from the actual story which we really want to see. If an animated film avoids attracting attention to its medium, then the base of the movie is set. If the movie cannot even successfully make the illusion of reality, it has not got a chance. Akira executes this perfectly and then builds on top of it with great art and style of animation. I'm going to give this movie a 9 out of 10. I love the art and the time it took to create it is just as impressive. The story is captivating and unique and overall everything in the movie fits together well. I think that when watching an animated film it is important to consider it in the same way you would consider any other type of movie. Look at its plot, character development, and art style, and forget that it is animated at all. You can rent this movie on Amazon Video, and I hope you give it a chance. This is Jake Winters for Iron the Triangle. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Snowverated. Enjoy the rest of your evening. I'm Saif Hassan, and this is your News Beyond the Headlines. Forty dead tiger cubs have been found in a freezer at a Thai Buddhist temple accused of wildlife trafficking and animal abuse. Police and wildlife officials started an operation on Monday to remove all the living tigers at the tiger temple. The site in Kanchanaburi is a popular tourist attraction but has been closed to the public since the raid. Police Colonel Bandit Mungsukum told AFP News Agency that wildlife officials would file new criminal charges after the discovery and added that the cubs were just one or two days old when they had died. Tiger bones and body parts are used in traditional Chinese medicine. Monks at the temple were not available for comment, but have previously denied trafficking allegations. 
The temple claims that the reason for keeping all the dead tiger corpses frozen, some which have been dead over five years, is to disprove any claims of wildlife trafficking. Dozens of living tigers have already been removed out of 137 at the temple. The 1,000-strong police operation is due to continue all week. Some workers and volunteers at the temple spoke out against the operation, but the World Wildlife Fund welcomed the news and called on the Thai government to prohibit the temple from keeping tigers in the future. Since 2001, authorities have been locked in a battle with the monks at the temple to confiscate the tigers after allegations of wildlife trafficking and abuse surfaced. The monks deny any wrongdoing. The temple, officially known as Wat Pha Luang Tabua, has been a tourist stop for decades. Visitors could pose for photographs of the tigers or help with their exercise routines. A special commission in Haiti has recommended throwing out the disputed results of last year's first round presidential election and holding a new vote. Commission President Pierre-Francois Benoit said zombie votes and other problems meant last October's ballot could not be considered legitimate. Haiti has been under an interim president since February. A runoff vote had been due in April but was postponed. Members of the Verification Commission said they had audited a quarter of the 13,000 tally sheets from polling stations in their search for fraud. A final decision on restarting the election from scratch will be made by a revamped Provisional Electoral Council, which is due to announce a new election date on Tuesday. However, the interim president has said Haiti cannot begin balloting again without first restoring confidence in the electoral process. Haiti has been in political turmoil since the first round in which Jovenel Moise came first but fell short of an overall majority. Opposition challenger Jude Celestin accused the electoral authorities of favoring Mr. Moise and threatened to pull out of the runoff vote. The interim president was nominated in February to fill a power vacuum after incumbent president Michael Martelli stepped down. Four runoff deadlines have been missed so far, on some occasions leading to violent unrest throughout the country. I'm Saif Hassan, and this has been your News Beyond the Headlines. adventure began as a way to explore new music, technology, and ideas. Previous to the festival, I was not too familiar with electronic music and even less with synthesizers. Since Jamie last week focused a lot on the musical aspect of the festival, I wanted to take a look at the others. This is why I decided to take to the streets of Durham and interact with my fellow Moog attendees. My friends and I headed to the modular marketplace first. It was in one of those revitalized factory basement type places. We walked in, and everywhere we looked, there were cool synthesizers, theremins, and other technological devices I had never seen before. I went around to a variety of people to ask them why they were at Moogfest. The first person I talked to was at Moogfest for a pretty interesting reason. Hi, I'm Charlie Hobbs. I'm doing theremin classes every day, like a kid's cool theremin school. With, I'm doing them with Dora Chrysler. Okay, the theremin is like the ubiquitous sound of a 1950s B-movie flying saucer taking off. It's the world's first like all-electronic instrument, and it's played by basically waving your hands over two antennae that control pitch and volume. And it's like the grandfather of synthesizers. In addition to festival goers, there were also a lot of innovators showing off their creations. I'm Dr. Bleep of Bleep Labs, a.k.a. John Mike Reed. I make weird 
simple noise toys that are kind of intended for DIY crowd and more like simple weird sounds and I was also surprised by the amount of out of town people I met besides just out of town NC people I met people from places like Austin, Texas and Portland, Oregon. Hey, my name is Lauren Bruno. I'm from Austin, Texas, and I am a musician that really likes to play synths. So I'm here enjoying synths and the world of music and creativity and tech. And I think it's beautiful when all of these worlds connect. So yay, Moogfest. Woohoo. <laughs> Another one of my favorite parts of Moogfest were the panels. These panels, or conversations as the festival called them, were one to two hour discussions on topics ranging anywhere from Afrofuturism to cyber feminism of the 1990s to reggae dub music and its historical and cultural influences. I was lucky enough to attend several of these conversations. My two favorite, by far, were the ones on the start of the internet and its relation to women, led by singer of Yacht, Claire L. Evans, and the history of reggae dub, led by influential producers Laurent Tippy Alfred, Lister Hewen Lowe, Ras Kush, and The Mad Professor. Evans' talk was incredibly interesting. She explained how the original computers of Harvard in the early 1900s were actually groups of women doing arithmetic. Up into the 1970s, the world of computers was mostly a woman's world. It was not seen as the high-level profession it is today. Building computers was a menial task. Evans pulled up a Cosmopolitan article from the 1960s that mentioned how computer programming was a great career for young women and compared programming to making dinner. It almost seemed like something from an alternate universe. I was really excited to hear about the birth of reggae dub because it is a genre I enjoy. The reggae dub panel was more of an open-ended discussion than a talk, unlike Evans' conversation. Reggae dub is the music of an oppressed people. It allowed for the poor people to blow off steam. To quote Lister Hewen Lowe, it gave a voice to the voiceless. One thing that I did not know about dub is that it's an old genre. It began to gain a following in the 1970s in England due to the large amount of Jamaican immigrants. Soon after, it became popular in America where dub would help give rise to upcoming genres like hip-hop and EDM. A pivotal part of dub music is sound system culture, which is based on improvisation and individuality. Sound system culture is the idea that each artist should have his or her own mixing system and artistic style. This gives the artist his or her own sound, which he or she is free to experiment with while performing. As Laurent Tippy Alfred said, dub is about the moment. It is not about a plan. The power is in the improvisation. Unfortunately, sound system culture was mostly lost when dub came to the U.S., and instead we have more of a DJ culture, which means that American dub has somewhat lost the individuality and improvisation of the original art form. Honestly, this panel was very long and quite interesting. I would encourage Googling these men and their art form. While a lot of Moog goers were there for the music, I think other parts of the festival were vastly underrated. If you're planning on attending Moogfest in the future, or any similar festivals, I would highly suggest going to the conversations. Pick like two to four. Trust me, you won't be disappointed. Thank you for listening. I'm Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. So welcome to Eye on the Triangle. My name is Alex Hoppy, and today we are talking about the science of beer and beer brewing with Dr. Shepard. 
Yeah, my name is John Shepard. I'm a professor in the Department of Food, Bioprocessing, and Nutrition Sciences here at NC State. So I think we should just start with the, the first question, and maybe a lot of college students drink the stuff, but they don't quite understand what's the, what's the difference between beer and other fermented alcohol drinks. So beer traditionally is made from four ingredients, malted barley, water, hops, and yeast. Now things like fruit and uh, other sources of sugar like honey uh, are traditionally not used in brewing. Uh, however, they have been used, uh, say, recently in the craft industry. So the, the line between beer and other alcoholic beverages is getting a little bit blurred. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I've seen a lot of Blue Moon that's been using a lot of fruit and a lot of uh, honey in their beers. What What is the process that you need to go into brewing beer? What are the so it used to be that all breweries did their own malting. So they would get the, the uh, raw barley from the farmer, and they would do a malting process, which involved germinating the barley. So there was little roots on the barley. This activated the enzymes in the barley, uh, after which they would kiln it or dry the barley. This stabilized the barley uh, for storage, and then prior to brewing, the barley, malted barley, would be ground up into flour and barley husks, and those would be used in the next step, which is called mashing. The enzymes that are uh, naturally in the, the barley seed uh, convert the stored starch in the seed into sugar, and this allows then the seed to germinate and to grow into a plant. So we utilize the same enzymes for converting the starch in the malted barley into sugar, which is then fermented. Now, are there any steps here that you can take to kind of change your beer from the outset, or is all the flavor get added after the fact? You just dump a little flavor packet like the ramen noodles into the end. <laughs> no, so th there are three main sources of flavor in beer. Uh, one will be, obviously, the uh, sugars that are left over uh, from the malted barley. So not all the sugars get fermented. And the leftover sugars then impart uh, a natural inherent sweetness to the product. Uh, the other flavor, which is very important, which offsets that sweetness in beer, is the bitterness provided by the hops. And there are a lot of different varieties of hops that provide different degrees of bitterness and also some aromatic quality to the beer, uh, such as fruitiness or flowery um, aroma. So the hops and the malt uh, provide a lot of the flavor. However, a lot, of, a lot of people also forget about the yeast. And the yeast metabolism not only produces ethanol, which is obviously what everyone uh, is interested in, but also some other compounds that, that add flavor to beer. And these are mainly called esters, and these esters are similar to some of the flavor compounds in hops, and they can provide fruitiness and, and, and kind of an aromatic nature to the beer as well, just as a result of the yeast metabolism. And for those of you who don't know, esters are double-bonded carbon molecules up to on oxygen. You learn about it all in organic chem. Okay, so after the seeds have germinated, as I mentioned, they need to be dried. So they're, they're dried in a kiln, and then the whole seeds are stored. 
and now they're they're stored and shipped to the brewery because the malting is is typically not done at the brewery anymore. Uh, once the brewery receives the malt, the malt needs to be ground just prior to doing the mashing. So the mashing process is where the the barley is mixed with water, and it's taken through a, a specific time temperature profile in order to activate the enzymes. And these enzymes then will degrade the starch into fermentable sugar. And it's, it's key that the proper temperatures are used during mashing in order to optimize the yield of the sugars during this mashing process. So you mash it up. Next comes fermentation, right? This is the part where we actually get the alcohol that we all want. So actually you're missing a step there. After mashing, part of the brew house is called the kettle. And this is something that you often see in pictures. It's a big copper vessel with, with a kind of looks like a smokestack coming out the center. And that kettle is where the so-called wort, which is a liquid from the mashing process, is boiled. And the hops are put into the kettle during this boiling. So this is when the bitterness to the flavor gets released from the hops and enters the, the liquid wort prior to the fermentation. So boiling is very important from the point of view of the bittering, and also it sterilizes the wort prior to the fermentation. Okay, very interesting. So you have to have all your ingredients together in in the kettle before you add any, any yeast or before you get any alcohol to begin with. Right, so the boil is, is done uh, obviously before putting the yeast in because the yeast would get killed uh, as a result of the, of the boiling temperature. So after the boil, the wort needs to be cooled down the fermentation temperature, and then and then only then is the yeast added, and the fermentation will begin. So, I saw online that you use a lot of different, a lot of new yeasts, right? And you're devising a lot of new types of brews using these yeasts. What does what does that mean? And why are there different types of yeasts that you can use? And why are we just finding out about finding out about them now? Okay, so historically. As you know, uh, brewing goes back many hundreds of years. And historically, people just used the indigenous yeast that was found in the brewing environment uh, to, uh, to accomplish the fermentation. They didn't realize that they could actually culture the yeast separately and therefore add an extra level of control to the fermentation process. So it wasn't until... Uh, sometime in the late part of the 19th century that the ability of brewers to culture pure yeast um, strains and, and pure yeast species developed. At that point, uh, brewers became um, essentially standardized to two particular species of yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is used for ale, and Saccharomyces pasteurianus, which is used for lager production. Those Two species of yeast uh, were, say, were um, developed in the brewing environment as being very good at converting those sugars into ethanol, very consistent. They, um, they didn't change their performance from batch to batch very much, so they, were, they, they became selected as the ideal species for making those two kinds of beer, ale and lager. Um, and that really was what the story was for the entire 20th century. Uh, the, the Most brewers kept with those species. Now, there are a few examples where 
Other species of, of yeast are used in some traditional Belgian-style beers. Uh, there are other types of yeast used, but 99.9% .9 of all beer is made with those two species of yeast. Uh, just recently, there's been some um, interest in looking at the possibility of using other species of yeast. Uh, our lab has been working with a species that was actually um, uh, isolated from an insect, and in, it was a bumblebee. And this this yeast is able to ferment the sugars with quite a bit of efficiency, but the unique characteristic of this yeast is it produces lactic acid at the same time that it's producing ethanol. So we're able to produce a sour-type beer uh, using a single uh, species of yeast without having to resort to the use of, of bacteria to create the acidity. So this is uh, one of the unique properties of this yeast, and I think there are, I'm sure, other wild uh, types of yeast that, that also have different characteristics and, and could result in, in new beer styles. That was actually my, my next question. What would you use different um, organisms besides yeast to ferment your beer? Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing about sour beers is typically the um, microbes, which are lactobacillus bacteria, that produce the sourness are considered to be contaminants. Uh, it's an unwanted organism in most beer styles. Now, there is that special Lambic-style Belgian beer that purposely uses lactobacillus uh, in order to produce the acidity. So that uh, special beer, you, you can use uh, bacteria. However, say most cases are considered to be uh, spoilage organism and give you undesirable characteristics um, in your beer. The, the interesting thing about our wild yeast is that we can produce that acid under certain conditions. Our yeast will do it, and under certain conditions, it won't produce the acid. So we can actually make different styles of beer, some sour, some not sour, using this same wild yeast species. Wow, that's, that's actually really incredible. Is there still yeast in my beer when I drink it, or they all get filtered out somehow? Is that the final well, step in the process? Good question. It depends on what beer you, you drink. Okay. Because uh, the most commercial beer from the large brewery would not have any yeast in it. Uh, that beer uh, is both filtered and pasteurized, so there would be no living yeast in that beer. This contrasts with uh, a lot of craft beer, where the beer is neither filtered nor pasteurized and is very likely would have viable yeast cells in it. Oh, okay, interesting. So after fermentation, what, what do we have to do in order to get it bottled and stuff like that? We just fill it up to a tap, you take it right there. So as I mentioned before, one of the byproducts of fermentation is carbon dioxide. Uh, however, um, usually the fermenter is left unpressurized during the fermentation. So so the carbon dioxide is released from the fermenter and you get some amount dissolved in the beer, but usually not enough uh, to consider the beer to be fully carbonated. So what we do after fermentation is we transfer the beer to what's called a bright beer tank and we pressurize the beer with carbon dioxide in that tank in order to get oversaturation. So 
when when the beer is packaged either in kegs or bottles or cans uh, and you pour it out, you get that nice foam level on top as a result of the CO2 uh, leaving the solution. Why is it important to have that foam level, that, that head on the beer? Is that yeah, important so, to the, the taste at all? Yeah, so it, it it's important to, uh, in various aspects of, of enjoying the experience of drinking the beer, first of all, um, the head is attractive uh, to most people. It, it, it means that the beer is of high quality if there is um, a foam layer or head on, on top of the liquid. Uh, second of all, it, it helps to uh, release the aromatics from the beer. So when you uh, when your nose approaches the foam, um, you, you, you'll pick up a lot of the aromatics that are trapped in the foam, uh, which is, and the aromatics actually are fairly large portion of the taste of beer. If you hold your nose when you're drinking beer, it won't taste at all the same. It's not going to be good at all. <laughs> well, it's not going to taste the same, that's for sure. The aromatics are important. And, and also when you drink the beer, if you see that the foam uh, clings to the side of the glass, again, it's another indication that the beer is of high quality. Interesting. I actually didn't, didn't know any of that. I just saw it on the top, just another thing to, to get stuck on my lip. Well, a lot of people drink beer from cans now, so they don't even see whether there's foam at all. So, It seems like do all alcoholic beverages have to use this fermentation process? Are there any more similarities between other alcoholic beverages and brewing, distilling them, um, and beer? So fermentation is a, is a kind of a general term uh, that applies to really the conversion of organic material using microorganisms. And it doesn't always result in significant amounts of alcohol. I mean, there are other kinds of fermentation that are non-alcoholic fermentation. Uh, yeast are usually involved in alcoholic fermentation uh, where there is more or less alcohol produced, but there are some products with very low amounts of alcohol in them that that uh, are a result of yeast fermentation as well. Wine is obviously one that is of higher concentration than beer, so the yeast is somewhat different than is used in brewing, the yeast that is used for making wine. Okay. How do you feel about home brewing and the, the opportunity to get new new styles and beers out there? Well, I think there's a lot of creativity that comes um, with home brewers. Uh, you know, there's there's really no restriction on what you can do at home. And I think, you know, it's a lot of fun for most people to to see what what they can do and, and you know, if they actually, at the end of the day, can drink what they what they made. That's a big plus. Yeah, I, you know, the the issue there, I think, is a couple of things that home brewers shouldn't expect to get consistent quality from batch to batch because typically the methods they use and the equipment they have isn't going to allow them to get, to make the same beer twice. <laughs> That's my experience with with them, but. Um, but on the other hand, it's it's fun to to taste uh, every every batch with a with a different tongue. So we've gone through a lot of different variables. We went through the uh, the barley matters to the taste. We went through the mashing process. Um, we went through the different types of yeast that could impact that. The different types of hops. Is there one variable that's the most important that you really have to watch out for if you're brewing beer? Well, the other thing that we haven't mentioned is water quality. Okay. Actually, so beer is is mostly made from water, and you have to be careful that you're using high quality water. Now that doesn't mean using 
necessarily bottled water or distilled water, but there are certain aspects to the water quality that will affect the fermentation. For example, you don't want to have chlorine in your water. And a lot of municipal water is chlorinated uh, as a disinfectant. So you need to filter that water or boil the water to, to remove the chlorine before using it. That's, that's one guideline I would give to home brewers. And second of all, uh, you need to have a certain level of hardness in the water, which means the calcium carbonate content. And if the, if the water doesn't have enough calcium in it, the enzymatic reaction that goes on during mashing is not going to proceed correctly. So there's a certain amount of, uh, say, mineral content that is also important to the water. So that calcium acts as kind of a catalyst for the... What's what's in our college favorite beer, in our PBR? What's in these standard national chains? Is there anything special about them? Are they just mass-produced? Yeah, so commercial beer is generally of, of high quality. I mean, I can't be too critical of them. Uh, they rely on, on mass marketing in, in order to, to, you know, to sell their product rather than, than on the taste. But on the other hand, the taste is very consistent um, and they, they're able to make it very inexpensively. And the way they make it inexpensively is by substituting um, a large portion of the barley with some other source of sugar like, for example, corn or rice, are the two most prevalent, um, they're called adjuncts, that are used by the large-scale commercial brewers. And that gives a different kind of character to the beer when you supplant that, that barley with the other sugar sources. But a lot of people like it, and, mm-hmm. you know, Bud Light is still... It's still around. It's great still, seller. It's still very cheap. <laughs> yeah. might be why. Well... Thank you very much for coming in, Dr. Shepard. It, it was a joy talking to you. I think we all learned a lot about the science of beer. Thank you, Alex. I've enjoyed the conversation. Always enjoy talking about beer. Listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. The time is 4:50, and I'm Marissa Jordan. If you're interested in lear- learning more about the reggae dub panel I attended at Moogfest, I also wrote an article for WKNC's blog, which you can find at blog.wknc.org. The historic building with the bulldozer sign on Hillsborough Street near Stanhope Apartments has been purchased by Georgia Company Landmark Properties. The purchase also includes the NC Equipment Company building, which was constructed in 1936. The Georgia-based student housing developer bought the site from Lulu founder and past CEO of Red Hat, Bob Young. It appears that Landmark wanted to build build more student apartments like Stanhope or Valentine Commons, but City Council denied their request to rezone the property, which would have allowed for residential units and retailed space. The council was worried about the impacts of the building project as well as what would become of the famous bulldozer sign. I'm Ian Grice. For your community calendar this week, 
This Thursday, June 2nd, the Museum of Life and Science in Durham is hosting a program called The Science of Eats from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. They are bringing sweet and sour and science together for one grand night of eating and exploration. All of your favorite local food vendors will be on hand with samples from uh, Duke, UNC, and NC State to who will be sharing the latest in everything uh, from food science research. Chat with local chefs and explore demonstrations and experiments. Uh, whichever happen, what, what happens to your brain on sugar, how your genes affect your perception of flavor, science-loving foodies rejoice. This event will be taking place in the main building on West Murray Avenue, Durham. NC State's Hunt Library is holding an event called Privacy Incidents, News and News About Incidents. On Monday, June 6th, from 1 to 2.30 p.m., in room 4106. With the exception of data breaches, there are no publicly accessible databases of private incidents. In this talk, NC State Associate Professor of Computer Science and Director of Privacy, Dr. Jessica Staden, will present a database of privacy incidents being developed at NC State in collaboration with UNC Charlotte and Clemson University. Currently, the database is mostly fueled by privacy news, and this talk will also include a descriptive large-scale analysis of privacy news, including sentiment, entities, and keywords. This analysis both helps build the content of the database and informs the trends and attributes tracked. This event is part of the Laboratory for Analytic Sciences in the College of Humanities and Social Science seminar series. Wake County is the Congressional District 4. There are only three candidates in this district for the U.S. House of Representatives. Republicans Sue Gouge and Teji Kimball and incumbent Democrat David Price. Only Gouge and Kimball will be on the Tuesday's ballot. Price is running unopposed. The other election on the ballot is for the state Supreme Court. There are four candidates for one seat. Michael Morgan is current Superior Court Judge, Daniel Robertson, a private attorney, Robert Edmonds, the incumbent Supreme Court Justice who is up for re-election, and Sabra Jean Ferris an attorney and former counsel with the General Assembly. You can find more information about the candidates for the special election at demnc.co slash court16 and, de and, and demnc.co slash congress16 and find your polling place at www.ncsbe.gov. As always, if you've liked anything, if you've heard anything you've liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. And you can also find our podcast 
on iTunes or on our blog. I'd like to thank contributors Jake Winners, Mirtha Donastorg, Alex Hopp, Hoppy, Saif Hassan, and Jamie Halla. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Ian Grice. I'm Jake Winners. And I'm Marissa Journey, Jordan, wishing you all a joyful first day of June. <laughs>